In today's episode, we'll hear a story from the Holocaust called Two Among the Righteous Few. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Marty Brownstein. Thanks for joining us, Marty. Thank you for having me on your show. Marty Brownstein is an award-winning storyteller from San Mateo, California, and author of the book Two Among the Righteous Few, a story of courage in the Holocaust. Who are the the two people uh, that you write about among the righteous few? Yeah, thank you for asking. This is about a Dutch Christian couple named Franz and Mien Weinacher, who during World War II, when their country, the Netherlands, was under the brutal occupation of Nazi Germany, they got involved when most did not. And in the end, they saved the lives of over two dozen Jews from certain death. Hmm. How did you learn about this story? Good question. I often say it's a story I stumbled into by accident on a trip to the Netherlands with my wife. Now that's over 10 years ago. And she's originally from the Netherlands. Her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was near 14 years old. But she had this curiosity as we went to the Netherlands. It's been 25 years since she had last been to her original homeland. And we went for six weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're more than two-thirds of the way into it, and she says, I wonder if I can find any of the Weinacher siblings. There's five of them. And that name doesn't mean a whole lot to me at this moment. I had heard of it in the past. She has a personal interest of wanting to find them, had lost touch. And through some, I'll say, course of serendipity, we, got, uh, we ended up finding the first one we got to meet. And he happened to be home at the time. He's never home. I'm not here. Franz Weinacher, Jr., Mm-hmm. And he lives in the actual house where his parents' rescue activity took place. And he remembered who my wife, Leah Bars, is and was so excited to see her. And another day later, all five Weinacher siblings came out to reconnect with Leah Inica, her Dutch nickname, Bars. They were happy to see her. They had not seen her in 25 years. So sparks fly for me in that visit, which we'll explore even more, which led to me eventually doing a book about their parents. Mm. I've... Uh watched uh, a video of you doing a presentation on the on the book or, or a presentation to a maybe a business group. I mean, that's what you do for a living, isn't it? Yes, I've been on an unexpected journey with this story now well into nine years. And I speak in a variety of venues. And yes, this is kind of my occupation, vocation. People often say, you've got a passion project going. I'm now near 720 events as I'm into the ninth year. Just finished the speaking series in the New York City area and have more now coming in my area. And so wide variety of venues, yes, in a workplace. I've been in certainly places of faith, schools, service organizations, libraries, bookstores, wide variety. Because people tell me you got to keep telling this inspirational story more than ever today. The uh, version that I saw, you started off by talking about World War II and the fact that the the Nazis were winning and that this was uh, uh, were taking over many countries in, in Europe, and not only the Netherlands. Wow, absolutely. When you think about uh, when the United States entered World War II, which we come in after the attack on Pearl Harbor, so officially December 8th of 1941, we declare war, and we're finally going to get in the war that was already over two years old in Europe. And at that point in time... Nazi Germany was controlling most of the continent of Europe, and they had other allies of the Axis powers with them, Bulgaria and Hungary and Romania, plus Italy, who had been there with them for a couple of years. 
And there are only two countries left in Europe still standing trying to fight them, Great Britain and the Soviet Union, who were both hurting badly. And so I often say it's the world's most frightening time, unless you're on Nazi Germany's side. And the Holocaust at this point had entered its third and final phase, which was the mass murder phase. So it's a very bleak situation. And tell us about uh, Franz Weinecker, if I'm saying his name correctly. How did he make his uh, living? Yes. He was a semi-skilled laborer who worked at a grain mill one town over, and they lived Mm -hmm. in a countryside area in southeastern Netherlands. But when the war broke out, he ended up taking a leave of absence from that job. And he starts this black market business by getting meat and eggs from farmers in the countryside where he lived. And then he would travel by train to the two-hour train ride to the major cities in the West, like Amsterdam, the capital city of The Hague. And he was selling what was scarce food. Now they're occupied by Germany. Cattle, very few in the Netherlands. The Germans had shifted off to their own country. And so this guy's showing up and selling to people. If you get caught, because black market business means it's not legal, Mm -hmm. he would have been thrown in jail. So you could tell there's some risk-taker side to him. And it was just through doing that that one day, he's in Amsterdam, it's spring 1943, Mm -hmm. and this doctor customer, he didn't happen to be a doctor by occupation, but just a customer he's done business with before, before he leaves the meeting with the doctor, the doctor turned to him and said, would you be willing to help? Mm -hmm. And it's the beginning of what will become their whole rescue effort, because he ends up sneaking out a young Jewish girl from Amsterdam to their home in the countryside. And that's where it began. Not by design. Huh. And in fact, didn't uh, <clears throat> wasn't uh, Franz Weinecker not really aware that Jews were in, in such danger? Correct. He, in terms of full awareness and understanding, he would see some things as he's now in the cities. And certainly mm. in his countryside area, you were much less mm. affected by the oppressive rule and then the persecution of the Jews going on. They had no Jews in their area. And so, but he's getting some exposure. So he's seeing things. Does he fully understand the ramifications and the dangers he just put himself in and his wife and then, of course, his kids? And probably not in the beginning. They were somewhat naive. And what's also very fascinating with this, because you, when you sneak somebody out of the cities, you don't do it during the day. It's too dangerous. You know, not only are the Nazi authorities, the Dutch police, the the Dutch Nazi people, the just the average citizen who will rat you out because the Nazis will pay you for it, mm-hmm. you sneak him out late at night. So he doesn't get home when he starts with this young girl to his little town of Deden until near midnight. So his wife, Mean, was so worried that did he get arrested for the black market business. And then when he finally shows up unexpectedly, because she can't sleep, and he says, uh, I've been asked to take this girl into our house for, say, three weeks. And Mean's response was, well, okay, it's late, let's get her to bed. And that is a major turning point right there because she went along. And that probably tells you there was a lot of trust in the relationship, where in many other cases, if one spouse found out and another one was starting to get involved in hiding Jews, forget it, it was over. Mm. And they, and that's the beginning of what will then, over time, two-year period, build into a big rescue effort. So his wife di- didn't know that he was doing that. No, I mean, she, I always tell audiences, or certainly when I do book discussions inside schools where they've read the book, fascinating discussions, is, of course, there were no cell phones then. He That's couldn't right. call her from Amsterdam and say, guess what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be home late tonight. So here he is unexpectedly showing up way late, and then she says, okay, let's get her to bed. 
I have a little antidote when I often will ask students about, you know, what, what was Mean's opinion when he made the decision to take this girl home, and they're wrestling with it, and they've read it, and then they find, you know, she wouldn't know because she wasn't there, of course. Yeah, he couldn't call her. And I ask him, if you live in a two-parent household, and one of your parents, if you've ever seen this, made a major decision without first consulting with the other, kids start giggling, and they later find out the other one does, what happens? And kids will be laughing, and always the answer is pretty similar. Oh, big argument, big fight. One kid said, World War III broke out in my house not long ago. Another one said, yeah. and it led to divorce. Yeah. And, and, and what was Mean's response? Ah, she went along. Well, what does that likely tell you about their relationship? Sounds like it was good. What happened to that first young woman? Uh, what, was it Fritja? Yeah, her false Dutch name, pronounced Fritja, her real name Shula, that was supposed to just be there for three weeks. Well, she's the where it began and ends up being a two-year effort. She doesn't ever go away uh, temporarily, but she's she's with And then within a short period of time, when they find out she's got a younger brother hiding in Amsterdam, they go get him. Soon another child is brought their way who happens to be Jewish. And they had four little children at the time themselves. And then it built because... There was a resistance group in the Netherlands, and there were very few of these kinds of resistance groups throughout all of Europe. It was called the LO. Its focus was to hide people, not to do sabotage or hit-and-run attacks. And they'll reach out to Franz and Mean and provide some funding to say, can you build a rescue network in your little area? Because we got people we're trying to get out of the cities, especially the remaining Jews still hiding. And if you can help create a little rescue network in your countryside. And then the thing took off. And, of course, many challenges and dangers with that. So interesting thing to, you know, whatever happened with Freitia, who obviously lives through this period and is about 17 when liberation comes, she's still alive today. Hmm. Her name is Shula Schwartz, and she lives in Haifa, Israel. And last this past May, we visited Israel, and we handed her a birthday card for her 91st birthday. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, and she, so she stayed with the Weinachers all through the rest of the war. Correct. Yeah. And I didn't grasp at first the the name distinctions. Like they give her a Dutch name so they don't use her Jewish name. Correct. And she happened to be German Jewish girl. And it was common that for many people, and there are far more non-Jews that were hidden than Jews, is that you often gave people a false identity, just to help you know that they can blend into the general population, just to hope that the authorities won't get them. And you had they all had identification papers with this false ID. It was all part of the game of trying to stay alive and not get detected. And who um, worked that game on the side of trying to protect the people? You, you said this organization, or was it the Weinachers? Did they come up with the fake IDs and things No, like? they didn't, but they were supplied them. And, and so part of the various underground groups and a major underground activity throughout occupied countries of Europe was creating false documents for people for and sometimes for Jews even baptismal certificates so they come across as Christian all sorts of false IDs from names and driver's license and all history to that and so there were organizations part of underground activity with the printing presses and all sorts of things that got pretty sophisticated but if you got caught it's over mm. and some do of course so Many of the different resistance groups would often just tap into people. It was a great way to make some extra money in this underworld of creating false IDs. So while the Weinachers didn't do it directly, some of the people they took in had already come with the false names, or they just created them anyway. 
and just to the outside world, that's a so-and-so when that's not who they really are. Did you say that uh, the hiding of the people who were in danger, the, the, the people were mainly not Jewish? The In the Netherlands, as an example, the, this resistance group, the LO, and the, the English translation for it was the National Organization for Helping People in Hiding, they will help hide from the authorities 300,000 people during this occupation period. Pretty amazing. But at best, about 25,000 of those were Jews, and they were the number one target. And over a third of them get caught and then deported off to the death camps in Poland. So most of the non-Jews who got involved in the risky, dangerous business of hiding people were more likely hiding non-Jews. Franz what? and Mean, everybody they helped were Jewish. Huh. Why were the non-Jews at risk? Yes. Various factors. One, you're, you're in a resistance group, so you're wanted anyway. Two, you actually were a political refugee from another country that got into the Netherlands prior to the country getting occupied in May of 1940. Uh, three, you might have been a union leader. Uh, four, you were a protester in something, and then, oops, they found out, and you better get into hiding. Uh, another major factor was forced labor. The Germans, and this, they did this with many of the countries they occupied, they needed labor in their own country because too many of their young people are off fighting the war and running the concentration camps. So they took from countries they occupied. In the Netherlands, they took over 350,000 to go work in Germany, not a job you wanted. So if they're after you for forced labor, sometimes you went into hiding. So various factors led to many people needing to get into hiding, needing to have false IDs. So it was, that was just part of the dangerous times that they were living under. We're talking with Marty Brownstein, an award-winning storyteller from San Mateo, California, author of the book, Two Among the Righteous Few, a story of courage in the Holocaust. More with Marty in just a moment. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and we depend on your contributions to keep the podcast going. We have a GoFundMe page. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019-the-historians, and you'll be able to contribute online. If you'd rather use the U.S. mail, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Marty Brownstein has uh, written a book uh, called Two Among the Righteous Few, Story of Courage in the Holocaust, about Franz and Mien Weinacher, a Dutch couple who hid a number of uh, Jews who had been living in the Netherlands from the Nazis uh, during uh, World War II. Where does Anne Frank uh, fit into this picture, or does she? Well, certainly her family, who were originally from Germany and then got out in the early 1930s when it was possible for her family to do that, made their lives in Amsterdam. But when the Nazi occupation got bad, and the Nazis conquer the Netherlands in May of 1940, and by 41, the laws start coming out targeting the Jews, and by 42, you better get into hiding because soon they're going to start the deportations. They got into hiding in Amsterdam. In fact, the very first person the Weinachers took in, this young girl, Freitje, false name, Shula, real name, was a friend of hers. She really? lived just a block down from her when she lived in Amsterdam. The problem for the Franks and other Jews who at least got the sense 
to get into hiding, one they have no idea is they stayed hiding in Amsterdam. And the chance of you surviving in any of the major cities and not getting detected and betrayed, very, very slim. And eventually they do get detected mm. and, boom, deported away to the to the death camps. And, of course, Anne Frank doesn't survive. Only her father did. So it's all going on, same time period, same circumstances. But the Weinachers were in a rural section, and that was safer? Yes, much more. You know, works to your advantage because where the German forces and certainly the Dutch Nazis, certainly they've got the cities locked down. So the countryside was a better location, but still not safe. And mm-hmm. as 1944 rolled around, German presence and the fighting starts picking up in their area. Uh, they One of their thorns in the local area was the local police chief. And throughout occupied Europe, one of the shames of that time period is most law enforcement went along with the Nazis. They mm-hmm. followed orders, paramilitary organizations. So one of their biggest thorns was the local police chief who wanted to stay in the good side of the Nazis was always suspicious. And so they had to be very careful that he wouldn't end up trying to capture them. He was always wondering, but I think his incompetence kept him. And the local towns that was anti-German anyway probably kept him from going further, but they he was a constant threat. How close did the Weinachers come to being uh, caught? Very good question. And the answer, very close. They will have a number of different threats that will happen. The potential of losing their house to an NSB or the Dutch Nazi person that they had to overcome. The chance, Franz got summons that you're going to need to go work in Germany, and if he goes away, this whole thing blows up. Uh, they had hassles with the rescue network that led them to have to quietly you know, move Jews from one place to another on the local communities, and that was dangerous. Threats of raids on the house to actual raids on the house that they didn't catch anybody. So they were, for almost this two-year period, they're living with this threat of danger over their heads every day, and they didn't cave in, which mm. is amazing when you think about it. Um, and you say they were at two raids on the on the house. No one was, none of their, uh, the Heidi's or the people they were hiding were, were there? They were there. What was interesting, Franz and Mean in their rescue effort because they kept people in their house, plus placed them in the local mm-hmm. communities. At the height of this, they often had 10 in their house. And they started with three Jewish children. And then as things picked up with this, the yellow reaching out to them, and they're now hiding more outside and in their house, the first adults they took in their own home was a young married Jewish couple. But the husband, his name was Lou, was an architect. Mm-hmm. And he designed and he worked with Franz to build a hiding room within their house. And they took kind of some open space. They had a good-sized rental, and he constructed with Franz this hiding room. And so when they had the threat of raids to the real raids, they had practice like a fire drill of getting in that really fast. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because they did not have that, they probably would have been caught. You can't run out the back door and up the dike into the river, the Moss River they live near, in time without Mm -hmm. getting caught. And so they all just went in that hiding room and... An outsider who'd never been in the house would never detect it, and they didn't. How did the Weinachers support themselves? Yeah, because during, good question, during this time period of the rescue efforts that they're involved with, he was no longer doing the black market business. And his contact with the LO told him, don't do it, because that's too risky. You get arrested, this all just falls apart. So he was getting some funding from the LO. It was helping him pay for the food and supplies for the people they were helping and actually helped him pay the people in the local communities who were taking people in. That was a key part of persuading them to come on board. 
And so that allowed him, so in essence, for this near two-year period, he wasn't so-called making a living, but they got by because of that funding that was going on and a local government official who provided some food along the way for them. They were able to piece it together. You uh, began the, the, the uh, our conversation talking about your trip to the Netherlands and your uh, wife, uh, Leah Bars, uh, reuniting with the uh, Weinachers. What was her story? Yeah, yes. All right. You're good, Bob. Thank you for your question. So, spoiler alert to the audience, because when I do the storytelling presentations in various settings, the audience only knows going in he has a very meaningful personal connection to the story, and I leave it to the end. Mm-hmm. And so, all of you keep a secret here. But uh, among the two dozen plus Jews that Franz and Means saved, I mentioned there was this young married Jewish couple who was able to be snuck out of Amsterdam and come to their home in the fall of 1943. But when they've arrived, that's the architect and his wife, the wife has a secret she cannot keep secret any longer. She's already pregnant. How do you get a baby born to a Jewish woman in Nazi-occupied Holland? And the answer, impossible. And they actually had so much going on with challenges and activity with the rescue effort. It's like, why would you even bother? And they could have maybe sent her away that the LO would take care of it somewhere else and split up the family. But they decided to take on this impossible challenge. Mm And in brief, they performed a miracle because they got the baby born and they kept her and her parents safe and together until liberation finally came. And it's been over 12 and a half years. That baby today is Leah Bars. She's really? my wife. Wow. I mean, how, how did they get the baby born? I mean, did they have a midwife? or? <laughs> I always say chapter 11 explains the whole thing. I see. But I'll give you it in brief. Is They came up with a strategy although they weren't sure how they were going to execute it, and they shared it with my wife, Leah's parents, who agreed with the strategy, and this was the strategy, is that however we get the baby born, when we do, we're going to register her with the authorities as our child. Ah. So Uh. she could be a baby with our four children rather than a baby in hiding. And so through a lot of, you know, the difficulty of can you find a doctor, where are you going to get the baby born, you can't do it in the house, and you certainly can't go down the local hospital, they found answers to all that over time. It was just amazing what they went through to pull this off. That's why I say it really was a miracle. And then to the outside world, she was registered, mm-hmm. and they thought it was a fifth. Mean was not pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And convincing her to go along was the first hurdle to overcome because she's is a Catholic woman who's in her reproductive years. And so that worked. So the outside world just thought it was a fifth child. Mm-hmm. So the Vinockers and my wife knew them growing up before they immigrated. They'd visit once a summer. And so there was, and we have that picture in the book when she'd come as a kid. And then years later, of course, she uh, had lost touch with them. And this trip, Hmm. she's able to find them. And the sparks flew that led to this story. Wow. How did your uh, Leah Bars and her family get out? Or did they all get out? Or, I mean, did they leave the Netherlands? Or did it happen when the Allied forces took control of that area? Nobody goes anywhere until liberation finally comes. And so full liberation to the Netherlands did not occur until May of 45, when all the rest of the countries in Western Europe, most were liberated by September of 44. So that last nine months was very tough. Then after the war, then everybody just goes on and tries to get on with life. And her her parents went back to Amsterdam initially, but they had no family left there. And her dad, as an architect, then got a job with Philips Corporation, multinational corporation headquartered in Eindhoven, which is in the south. And 
So that's where she's growing up, very few Jews around now. But her dad always has this interest to Germany's next door, Jewish life here certainly has been destroyed, let's immigrate somewhere. And it was either United States or Israel, Israel is still a young country, they had some people they knew in Los Angeles, and so she comes over here when she's in her eighth grade. She went back, just to add a little thing, also a significant part of this story that sparked me, is it's two among the righteous few. And righteous comes from Yad Vashem, Mm -hmm. the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, the most prominent in the world, and it's the honor that goes to the non-Jews, like Oscar Schindler, who risked their lives to try to help save the lives of Jews. Franz and Mean Weinacher are righteous among the nations. And when I stumble in the story by accident, and I was shown the plaque by one of the sons, Franz Weinacher Jr., I understood what that meant. Something heroic happened here. And the last time she had been back was the summer of 84, after the announcement from Yad Vashem had come, and the local towns in the Netherlands put on a parade and dinner to honor Franz. Mean, unfortunately, was not alive. And so she flew over from San Francisco. And then went back, and life goes on, and she's raising her kids and having a career. And 25 years later, she comes back, and we're traveling around, and she has this curiosity. I wonder if I can find any of the Weinacher siblings. Hmm. And we found them. Yeah. How did you meet your wife? We met through uh, Jewish singles, uh, gosh, over 18 years ago. And one thing led to another, and I often tell people, she'll slap me when I say this, that she spiked my coffee to make me think she was wonderful. (laughs) And uh, we're still at it today. Wow. And the so the Weinachers then did receive their due, if you will. I mean, the people, they were honored for what, what they had done during the Years war. Years later. Yeah. Certainly after the war, nobody talks about this. And you, in many places, would never even admit that you were involved in helping because people frowned upon it. You were bringing danger into our neighborhood because if they caught you, they're going to take it out on all of us, which was most likely true. So it's just you go on with life. Mm. Not till years later, and testimony comes from my wife's parents and some of the others that help, they help save. And this Department of Yad Vashem, Righteous Among the Nations, who issues the honors, reviewed the testimony and said, oh yeah, they were at risk, and yeah, they truly helped. Let's honor them. And they got that honor 10 years before Oscar Schindler and Emily, his wife, got the honor. Hmm. She's not in the movie, unfortunately, of Schindler's List. Oh, I mean, Schindler's List... Deals with the Weinachers to some extent? No, no. no I'm no. in terms of Oscar Schindler. The, the name Righteous, if people aren't familiar with the term, they know Oscar Schindler right. because of the Schindler's right. List movie. Yep. I was just pointing out that if you actually see, when you see the movie, Emily Schindler, his wife, is also honored with him from Yad Vashem. But in terms of the movie, she's not featured at all. Uh-huh. Just a little another history tidbit that I ta- do some other heroes of the Holocaust talks that people love when I tell them the, the real story behind Schindler what he did and who really helped not just himself mm. well i remember from the movie i mean he did one you know uh, very humanitarian things but he sure. he wasn't a shall i say a saint or a, exactly yeah. yes no he was he's he's most unusual in terms of this was a philanderer an opportunist and someone something changed that said maybe i'll try to help and so the movie certainly captured that and and certainly what he did was terrific it doesn't necessarily give the full story of the others that were helping him, especially his wife. Mm-hmm. Yad Vashem, if you go to Yad Vashem's database and you see the recognition, it's Oscar and Emily Schindler together. He can't succeed without her. But the movie didn't focus on her at all. Mm. Uh, and your book has been out since 2011? Correct. 
Yeah. I've been on this journey now well into ninth year. Authors don't do that. No. So it's more than just uh, promoting a book. People yep. say you're an author on a journey with a mission to keep sharing this story to make a positive difference. You call yourself a humble messenger for two brave people. Well put. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Marty Brownstein is uh, the man who joined us, an award-winning storyteller. Uh, just a few seconds, you've won the Jefferson Award. What is that? This, uh, and it came from one of my supporters making the nomination. It's an organization called Multiplying Good, started in 1972 by, among others, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, to recognize people are doing service to the community and public good for America. Mm -hmm. And because of what I've been doing with the story, one of my supporters said he should be recognized in Bay Area region said yes. Marty Brownstein is author of Two Among the Righteous Few, A Story of Courage in the Holocaust. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.